welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith, and thank you for listening. David uh, is not here, unfortunately. He is, uh, as we say, on assignment. I don't exactly know what he's been assigned to do, except uh, to uh, leave me high and dry, but that's all right, because we have an amazing guest today. But before we get to that, we do want to uh, tell you that this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Everyday Movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi is Hal Ashby's Let's Spend the Night Together, a rockin' documentary from 1984 featuring the Rolling Stones. All right, now, uh, since we always talk about uh, personal relationships with these movies, I've not seen this documentary, sadly, but... Last year, I did go to Desert Trip in Palm Springs, and I was actually able to see the Rolling Stones live, and it is astonishing to me because they are getting up there in years, and it seems to have had no impact on them at all as far as stage presence. It is one of the best, I mean, understandably so, it's like one of the best concerts I've ever had. They're just full of energy, and uh, and I have seen uh, Gimme Shelter, and so um, I'm very interested to see this particular documentary. I'm also interested to see how Hal Ashby makes a documentary about the Rolling Stones. So uh, so check it out. There is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now, or just click on the Mubi ad at BattleshipPretension.com. <clears throat> okay, so I mentioned that we have an amazing guest, and that is in fact true. So let's get to know her. Her name is... She's an author, she's a journalist, she's just uh, an iconoclast. That's the way I like, that's a term I like because I'm not 100% sure what it means, but it sounds good. Um, it's Beverly Gray. Beverly, how you doing? I'm doing fine, and I'm wondering if I really am a, an iconoclast <laughs> because that means it's a breaker of idols, and I'm not sure that's what I do. Uh, we'll, well, let's give it a shot. Let's see if we okay. can do it today. All right. Um, so uh, there's a lot to talk about because you've had uh, an illustrious career and making movies, talking about movies. Um, but let's first get to know you just a little bit. Where are you from originally? I am a Southern California gal. Really? I okay. was born in Hollywood. Uh, and you stayed. Many, many years ago, and here I am. I All live right. in Santa Monica, so I haven't moved far. <laughs> you migrated just about two miles, but uh, maybe it's more. I don't know. I'm terrible with distance. distance but... Um, all right, and then you attended UCLA. I did. Which I am attending right now, but you did not major in film. You majored in, let me, let's see, contemporary American fiction? Right. I mean, okay. I was your classic English major. All right, now when you say classic English major, what does that mean? Like, uh, I'm trying to think like the English majors I know. I'm trying to think of like the stereotype. Oh, dear. Super smart and literate is, is all I can think of. Well, yeah, so, I'll take that. You know. Smoking a pipe, but I don't think I actually know anybody that does that. But um, I did have a question, though, and this may seem like a really obvious question. Um, so contemporary American fiction, at what, like, what does a contemporary... I know what the, what the term means, but what does it literally mean like for you? Like when you were in school, what, did, like, what was the age that it was talking about? When I was in school, okay. many eons ago, okay. it meant writing about authors, and I was interested in the novel, okay. writing about authors who are actually still alive and still doing it. All right. So, that's, so basically, if someone's still working, 
they count as contemporary. I would say. Okay. All right. That's that makes sense. Um, yeah, it's uh, something that I was talking with a friend about. Um, just like a certain love of American fiction and American novels, and so this is not movie related, but that's all right. I was going to ask you what prompted you to major in that specifically. Well, I loved literature. I loved writing. Mm -hmm. I loved writing about writing. Yeah. But I was very interested in the current scene and what was happening. So Mm. that's why the novels that were being written now were fascinating to me at the same time that I really did love 17th century poetry and Shakespeare and the 18th century novel and so on and so on. Yeah. But I liked that current edge to what I was doing. Right. And then in a funny way, that evolved into my writing about film. Hmm. So was this, can you give me like an idea of like when you were in school, like the 1970s? That's kind. Well, you know, it's... (laughs) Yeah, uh, actually I was in school in the 1970s. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was just like 60s and 70s was like an amazing time for film. And I would say American art in general, like, and it all seemed to kind of weave into itself. Right. And it was a very, very complicated time as well. And that's something I'm reliving in a way Mm -hmm. while writing the book that we're going to talk about today, because we college students in the late 60s had a lot on our minds. Yeah, Uh, We had, most of us, and I generalize, of course, had grown up in a pretty secure post-World War II environment. We were much better off than our parents ever were at our age. Uh, We should have been pretty happy, but there was a lot going on we were not happy about at all. Uh, In 1963, and we all remembered this very, very vividly and acutely, we lost a president. Mm -hmm. Uh, We remembered that assassination. We remembered how we felt about it. And we were going to lose a couple of more icons in 1968. So those were things that were on our minds. Also, again, amongst the people that I circulated with, we believed in the civil rights movement. Right. We had all probably marched around with candles and singing, We Shall Overcome. Yeah. But that was getting complicated, too. Uh, it was starting to turn bloody in some places. Yeah. There were riots, civil disturbances, whatever you care to call them. But it was there was kind of a black-white clash that was starting to really bother us, those of us who are idealistic about the idea of people coming together and not pulling apart. And then, of course, there was the war on Vietnam. And that was really the dominant thing, obviously, on an awful lot of people's minds, especially people who were in very grave danger of being drafted. And in the year that I am most interested in and that I write about... 1967, I had to go back and and find the history of this to find how it all worked out. In 1967, there was a very big change. There was a new Selective Service Act, which said that after a young man had finished his four years of college, and it had to be four years, you couldn't stall around and make it five years or six, after your four years of college, you were eligible for the draft. You were not in most cases, permitted to go off to grad school or law school or whatever you wanted to do. There was this thing standing in your way. That, of course, was a very grave concern to young men of my acquaintance, and some of them were 
doing fairly drastic things to avoid it. Yeah. Uh, as a female, I didn't have to worry about it personally, but I certainly saw that worry all around me, and I cared about people who were facing it. Yeah. So all of those things factored into the year in the arts yeah. and made us love certain movies that seemed in one way or another obliquely to be dealing with the crisis we felt we were in. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. Um, the more I've thought about it is that if you're going to study the history of probably any art, you will eventually arrive. And I say eventually as though it's, it would happen like down the line. You will almost immediately arrive at the, his, the history and culture of that moment. And you kind of have to um, because art doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, it, it will constantly reflect what's going on. And in doing so, it will, also, it will also help shape what's going on. It's kind of this interesting relationship between the two. That's exactly right. And I should add that, in a way, you can try to see art in a vacuum. If you see a great painting, it's probably a great painting, yeah. even if it's 200 or 400 or 600 years old. Right. However, you're interacting with it from your own contemporary perspective. Yeah. And some works of art, and the one I've been thinking and writing about recently certainly is, is that kind of work of art. Yeah. It seems to change over time depending on who you are, <coughs> what you're thinking about, how old you are. Right. You know, is there, let me ask you this, is there in some ways the idea that, that a work of art, whether it be a movie or a book or a painting or whatever it is, um, the idea that future generations can look at it and bring their own, I was gonna say baggage, that sounds negative, but bring their own experiences culturally and personally to it as they, you know, look at it or read it and engage with it. On one hand, that's amazing. I love it because it, it actually adds to a certain timelessness to that work of art. But on the other hand, I feel like it's potentially scary because people wind up bringing something and, and maybe even putting, projecting something onto the art that it was truly never meant to have. Um, is that something that you find from time to time? And is that something that bothers you or you kind of go with the flow about it? Well, let me get specific. Okay. The, the work we're here to talk about is a book that I've just written, just published, called Seduced by Mrs. Robinson, How the Graduate Became the Touchstone of a Generation. Mm -hmm. And it's appropriate to mention that right now in regard to your question, because Mike Nichols, fantastic director, this was yeah. very, very early in his filmmaking career. He was completely accepting of the fact that people would bring their own thoughts and ideas and concerns to a work of art. Mm -hmm. It didn't bother him in the least that they would look for interpretations that he had never personally sat down and thought about. Yeah. He was quite open to that, and I think he was basically right. Uh, obviously, it's possible, I'm sure, to distort something so out of context that the writer would be horrified sure. uh, or the filmmaker would be horrified uh, if, it's, if you use it to endorse something that's very upsetting, very disturbing. But a, a great work of art should open your mind, yeah. give you ideas, and you'd interact with it. And I think actually the word you just used was 
use if you use it for something it's like well then you're not actually engaging you're just twisting it to make it be whatever you want it to be but if you're organically put in mind of something that has to do with you know your culture at this particular moment then yeah i don't think there's anything wrong with that at all but like anytime someone's like oh i can use this to do what i want then i think regardless of the era i think that is a, a negative way to approach art of any kind because then ultimately you're just like oh i wish i had some propaganda oh i can use this uh, and it can be very uh, very dangerous um and so I did, uh, so let's go ahead and, and jump into it. And we're going to jump around a little bit more. Sure. Um, so your your book, uh, Seduced by Mrs. Robinson, is about The Graduate. And it is the 50th anniversary of the film. It is. And it, it has shown itself to be a timeless film. And before we get, <coughs> excuse me, before we get into the film proper, I was curious. Um, a film like Easy Rider... I don't think is timeless. I think a lot of people my age and younger and maybe even a little bit older who didn't live through that time, we watch it and we say like, yeah, all right, this is interesting. Nicholson's really interesting. Uh, and it's fun to see him and Dennis Hopper's always fun to watch. Um, but I don't think because we didn't live through that era, like it seems so specific right. to that it's, era. It's a period piece. It's a yeah. time capsule. Yeah. And so what do you think it is about the graduate specifically that, and I'm, I guess in a way we could say this about any wonderful, timeless work of art, but what do you think it is about The Graduate specifically that has stood the test of time? The Sorry, that's a big question. No, no, uh, <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, the Graduate was never intended to address a particular point in time. In mm -hmm. fact, curiously enough, the people who've made it, and the one I've talked to the most is Larry Terman, who was the producer, and mm. without whom this, this wouldn't have happened at all, even though he's kind of the forgotten man in terms of yeah. the history of The Graduate. Uh, nobody really thought of it as reflecting a particular point in time. They thought of it as reflecting themselves, first yeah. of all, and a something in the human condition or the condition of the young person just getting out of college, not knowing quite what to do with himself, resisting the status quo, resisting the older generation. Mike Nichols, Larry Terman, Buck Henry, all of those people identified with this film. In some ways, one of the things they identified with is they thought in some ways it was their catcher in the rye. They mm -hmm. thought it was that it could fit into that category. Uh, so they never really planned it to be a commentary on the late 60s. Yeah. That was a surprise to them. And almost something that Mike Nichols a tiny bit resented. He was annoyed that when he took it to campuses, there was always some wiseacre, well, I don't mean it that way, there was always <laughs> some cranky dissident in the audience sure. who said... Why isn't this about Vietnam? If this is about the youth of today, where's, hmm. where's the war? Where's the draft? Where are all those things we care about? So there are always some people who were yeah. rather upset. And Mike Nichols, in turn, felt annoyed at that and said, oh, they only thought you could be a serious person if you were dealing with Vietnam because right. that was the fashionable topic of the day. And th that term really got to me, the fashionable topic, because yeah. Vietnam in fact, was not simply fashionable. It was a life or death topic. So right. you cannot blame people for looking to find it. But interestingly, as the graduate made 
a fantastic amount of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of box office, it was up there in Sound of Music territory. It, mm -hmm. it just, everyone saw it. And some people prided themselves on how many times they had seen it, you know, seven times or eight times. Yeah. They just saw it again and again. So it made an awful lot of money. And of course, your usual studio types immediately said, oh, well, if that's what they want, yeah. just as they said after Easy Rider, oh, well, if that's what they want. So movies like Getting Straight started being made. I don't know mm -hmm. if you're familiar with Getting Straight. I don't think I am. Okay. Well, that is... That, that says something right there. All right. I see on your shelf about 6,432,000 <laughs> movies, and none of them is getting straight. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe there is. No. Alphabetically, no, I don't see it there. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, <laughs> Getting Straight is a movie that tries to be timely. Mm -hmm. It was made in the early 70s, maybe 70, 71. Elliot Gould was the star. Candace Bergen's in it. And I like that. Yeah. And it's about a Vietnam vet who's back on a college campus. He's kind of a teaching assistant, graduate student type, and things get more and more complicated, and pretty soon there is a major campus riot, a, a campus uh, uh, sit-in, police brutality kind of incident. Yeah. And, and so it's got all the tropes that were associated with the time. It's got his memories of Vietnam. It's got student clashes with the authorities. It's got all of that. Mm -hmm. And it was, it made a little bit of money at the time. I don't think it was a blockbuster. I know it wasn't a blockbuster. And you haven't heard of it. It's it's odd. There's something, and and I'm sure the movie is, is, is fine or maybe even very good. I'm a big fan of Elliot Gould and Candace Bergen. Um, but I have found that Anytime a movie is trying desperate, as you said, trying so hard to be timely, um, A, it, it can make itself almost immediately irrelevant, uh, like within a few years. But also I find that there's a certain, there's nothing wrong with being earnest, but there's a certain earnestness and like just such a, you can see the effort as they're saying like, no, no, this is very important. And I feel like audiences sometimes can sniff that out and reject it. Yeah. Um, whereas something like the, the Graduate, he's just doing his own thing, and because this is very much the story of Benjamin Braddock, but like you said, it can be the story of anybody who got out of college, and they're like, "Oh, okay, now what?" And because of that, everyone can relate to it because it's either where they are or where they were, and it's just something that I find fascinating. I think there's there is a timelessness to that that. If he decided to, even if he had decided to shoehorn some Vietnam in there, I think that would be the part that doesn't really sit uh, sit well with people from you know uh, after the film came out. It's interesting you say that because uh, they there was a momentary attempt, and I wouldn't have known this except uh, the scripts are in right. the special collections of the UCLA Library. One of Buck Henry's early drafts, there is a little scene where Benjamin has a conversation. He, he runs into a high school classmate mm -hmm. who's now in the army and who is one of, as he says, the dumb kids who went to Vietnam while you smart kids went yeah. off to fancy colleges. And it doesn't work. It mm -hmm. just seems like they're underscoring that they're being topical. I think they realized yeah. very early on that taking that tack wasn't working. 
And back to Ben, who is in the novel, because there was a novel, mm-hmm. and in the film, Benjamin Braddock is a kind of a cipher. He's a kind of a blank. We don't yeah. really know what his problem is or why he is so unhappy. And in a very odd way, that works in the film's favor because everybody can see something that's familiar. Uh, the getting out of college thing is the obvious one. Yeah. But for me, watching the movie, another thing that really affected me, those early party scenes where... Ben is surrounded by his parents and their adoring friends, and yeah. everybody thinks they know what he's going to do with himself and where he's going to go. And I, for one, had that exact experience. Hmm. I had wonderful parents, uh, loving parents, smart parents. They were all sorts of good things. But by the time I was pretty much through with college, they knew exactly what steps I should take and yeah. where I should go and what I should do. And I have to assume they thought, you know what? I think you should work for Roger Corman. I'm sure it's the first thing they said, right? <laughs> Somehow, no, that did not occur to them. No, my father, who my, my father, who was a depression era kid who had uh, struggled and, and, and made his way and, and became a CPA with some difficulty. And then uh, while I was in junior high school, he went back to law school and working all day law school at night and became an attorney. And so that was very impressive for him. And it was a certain inner drive that allowed him to do that. But for him, it was a wonderful idea for me to go to law school. And in a certain way, you could say he was an enlightened guy because he certainly felt that that as a a female that I could and should do that. He certainly was not going to relegate me to the nurses and the teachers uh, ranks. But uh, he had it all figured out, hmm. you know. And of course, I would marry and have kids. But you know, while yeah. you know, with my law degree, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's not that anything was wrong with any of those dreams. They right. just weren't necessarily my dreams. Yeah. And seeing the graduate, all of that was encapsulated for me. And you know, it's you mentioned uh, a moment ago, like the the idea of like. Kennedy being killed and then, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy and that sort of thing. Um, and of course, it's it's worth noting, and I'm, I don't know, the billionth person to say something like this, but of course, the people being killed weren't like members of the old guard, you know? It was people that were young and youthful and they wanted something a little bit different uh, as opposed to what was just prescribed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that attitude of like, no, you you can't, you can't just tell me what my life is going to be. Yours was one way. Mine is going to be my own way. And that's, that's okay. Um, I think that's something that just, you know, if you watch any kind of sixties cinema, any kind of, that even is vaguely subversive, like that is kind of soaked in there and maybe even a little bit earlier, like stuff with rebel without a cause, which in its own way, I do relate in my mind to, um, the graduate, just like these young guys, one of them, like you said, very much a cipher, kind of disaffected, and the other roiling with emotion. But still, I, I feel like they're they're spiritually uh, spiritual cousins in a lot of ways. Cousins, but but not kissing cousins. Right. Uh, they're uh, they're a little distant because Rebel Without a Cause, or particularly something like The Wild One. You know, mm. these are these are 
well, the wild one, rough, tough characters. Yeah. Uh, Rebel Without a Cause, there is certainly a sense of angst because he's yeah. he's from the middle class family and it doesn't, it's not working. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't identify with those people in the mm. same way that I could with, with uh, Benjamin Braddock. Yeah. His life was much closer to the one that I grew up with. Mm. He was polite. He... If you, if you watch the movie carefully, he remains extraordinarily polite. Yeah. Um, he doesn't want to upset his parents, and his parents are trying hard on his behalf. They mm. just don't quite know how to do that. Uh, they're embarrassing the heck out of him, but yeah. uh, <clears throat> they're not ignoring him. They're not neglecting him. It's it's There's too much love there in a way. Yeah. So... Let me ask you this, and maybe this is a spoiler for the book. I'm not sure. Um, you know, this is about uh, a young guy who isn't exactly sure where to go, but by the end, you know, he clear he has a lot of purpose um, and is headed towards this wedding ceremony. He knows what he's going to do, and then he does it. But then there's that last shot, which I understand was gotten kind of by accident, mm-hmm. right? But Mike Nichols immediately is like, this is going to work perfectly for what I'm trying to do. But how do you, you know, given what we're talking about here, about like youth kind of trying to make its own way. Well, in that moment, he and and uh, uh, Elaine, yes, uh, it's like, what's her name? Oh, right. He shouts it at the top of his lungs. Why is it not occurring to me? But 20 they, times he yeah. shouts it. I counted. <laughs> <laughs> but like they've made their own way. They're on that bus and they're going to do what they're going to do. Ugh, but now they're not 100% sure about it. Like, in the context of what you and I are talking about, like, how do you, how do you read that ending? Good question. <laughs> uh, interestingly, there was a conversation. I, I, had, I asked a question of Larry Terman, the mm-hmm. producer, and I said, how did you see the ending? What, what did you see? He said, well, Mike Nichols always saw the ending as... A questionable one that the happiness that they're showing is tainted and is is not going to last. And I think in a very short order she's going to look around and say, "You know, I have nothing to wear," yeah. and <laughs> and so on. Uh, so he was skeptical about their happily ever after. And Larry Turman apparently said to him, "Mike, you're a smart guy, but you've missed the boat on this one." our audience will think this ending is a triumph. Hmm. And I think I can say that in the audience at the time when the film came out, I think most people, most young people did. They were, it's been described to me, uh, in screenings all over the country, people starting in that church scene, just clapping and cheering and and, uh, just it's like you know, watching Rocky. I mean, yeah. they they were full of enthusiasm to the point where the theater was just rocking out with yeah. with happiness as these young people made their getaway. So I think a lot of the early watchers of the film didn't stop to look very hard at that ending or to think very hard about it. That's one of the interesting things I ha- yeah. I think that happens when you see the film over time. You might not feel it so much when you're 18 or 22 years old, yeah. but when you're 40, 
you might say, oh, I can see the uncertainty there. I can see the confusion there. I can see the very reasonable doubts, because here are two young people who have, as far as we can tell, no money. They've got education in the sense of having been to a lot of classes, but no practical skills. At this point, they've cut off ties with all, you know, with a support network at, in their home life. Yeah. Uh, anyone with, a, with an ounce of realism is yeah. going to see that th- this may not work out so well. It's something, yeah, you mentioned like the age range, and I think you're, I think you're dead on. Like, I was an 18-year-old at one point, and, you know, I was seeing, and, and I was also a, a film lover, but I was not super mature yet, uh, not to imply I'm there yet, but, um, but I would watch movies like, for example, Unforgiven, you know, mm-hmm. which was not that old of a film at the time, and, you know, my friends and I would watch it, and that ending where Clint Eastwood just, you know, kills everybody, spoilers everyone, um, we thought like, yeah, get him. As I've gotten older, I realized like, oh, this is an anti-violence movie. Yeah, this is seen as a horrible thing, and he is actually at this point completely, uh, maybe not totally irredeemable, but he is going back to something he never wanted to. And this is not necessarily a triumph for him. Um, it's just pure vengeance. And so as I so I realized that now that I'm older, uh, but yeah, at the time I was high fiving my friends and like, yeah, you get him, Clint, because I was dumb. Uh, maybe dumb's not the word. I was just at a different point in my life. Let's put it caught that way. up in the moment. <laughs> caught up in the moment, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I do want to actually talk about some some other things as well because you've had a, a fascinating uh, and you know. Uh, by your, by your own account, kind of an unlikely career, especially uh, early on. So, um, and we'll, we'll circle back around to, to this book because I know that, uh, you know, you want people to, to seek it out and uh, we'll put a link for our, our listeners to, to buy it on Amazon. Sure, the ideal holiday present. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you're a film lover uh, and if you know a film lover, well, everyone's seen The Graduate and now, you know, you can read all about it. Um, so I mentioned Roger Corman earlier. Uh, listeners, that wasn't just a non sequitur. Um, that was, uh, yeah, out of school. You got your PhD, right? Mm-hmm. And you somehow wound up working for Roger Corman. How on earth did that happen? Okay, that is an interesting story. <laughs> okay. I, it would have to be. Yes, uh, it was indeed. I was working on my PhD in English. And somewhere along the line, when I entered grad school, I thought that I liked writing esoteric papers for professors of English. Mm-hmm. But I also kind of fancied the idea of people who weren't professors of English reading and enjoying my writing. Mm-hmm. So I marched into the office of the UCLA Daily Bruin and said, I'm really interested in theater. I would like to write theater reviews. And the guy who was in charge of that aspect of the Daily Bruin, who was a bit of a theater snob, or more than a bit, uh, obviously didn't think I was worthy. Uh, so he sent me to the movies instead. <laughs> that is a true theater snob, when it's like, you're not good enough for theater movies, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I went and saw Coogan's Bluff. It was the first movie I saw as a movie reviewer. And... Uh, 
And I saw good ones and bad ones and all kinds of movies ever since and loved the idea that people were reading me. I remember being in one film class because I audited a lot of film classes and I saw someone reading something I had written and the lights were mm. dimming and he was reading and you know, I could see that he, would, he wanted to finish it before the lights went off and I, you know, I wanted to applaud this guy. I mean, this, this is great. So anyway, I was writing for the Daily Bruin and this was known within my department. And one day... I got a call from a professor who was a friend of mine, and he said, a man named Roger Corman called me up, and he's looking for an assistant. And I thought of you because, you know, you're obviously, you know, you write about movies. So I went in, and my first thought was, who is Roger Corman? I was going to ask if you, if you knew. I had no idea. Okay. I hadn't a clue. Yeah. And, of course... I just looked him up on Wikipedia, and then wait, that was a joke. <laughs> okay. Ramon was like, "Hang on a second. Okay. <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, so I I got a quick education in who he was, and then I went to his office, which was on the Sunset Strip at the time. And Roger said to me, "And you've got to forgive me because everyone who has ever worked for Roger Corman does the Roger Corman invitation. Okay, he has a very distinctive way of talking." Uh, and he said. Uh, Beverly, if you come to work for me, I would like you to read Siegfried Krakauer's Theory of Film, and we'll discuss it. So I said, sure, you know, and I looked around the room, and there were all these posters for you know, night call nurses and, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, angels hard as they come, <coughs> things like that. And I, I kind of wondered. So I went home and I, I read Siegfried Krakauer's Theory of Film from cover to cover. And then I kept waiting to have this discussion that we were going to have, Roger and I. Yeah. And uh, it never came up again. <laughs> That's... Okay, so I have seen criminally few Roger Corman films. Um and there yeah. are about 500, you know. <laughs> exactly. Um, you almost feel like you could watch one by accident, uh, just statistically. Um, but when I was younger, and I, I, this is going to sound insulting, and I don't mean for it to, but, you know, you mentioned, like, the posters on his wall. Like, yeah. we all know what Roger Corman movies are um, from a budgetary standpoint, and they tend to be very exploitative. Um and it just fascinates me. It, sorry, it fascinated me when I was younger, and I didn't quite understand, like, why is this man so revered? Uh, and then you'd watch interviews with him, and he seems like just the, first off, a very nice guy, but also incredibly well, like, you just would not associate, almost like a professor. And you would not associate this man with the movies put out under his name. And I just, for the life of me, I just could not understand what the appeal of his movies were. And then as I got older, I realized that, A, they tend to be very charming, and B, there's a lot of joy to them. Like, you can just tell everyone's really excited to be making these movies. Even if they're not excited about the material, they're excited to be making the movies themselves. Um, was is But that's, that's the vibe I get from the few I've seen. Was that your experience? Were people excited to be making movies? First of all, I'm curious to know which ones you've seen, which ones you can call up. I saw, let's see... Death Race 2000. That's under his name, right? That's, that's Oh, gosh, yes. Okay. Um, when I was young, I saw a movie from the 90s called Carnosaur. 
um, which is a it came out unsurprisingly around the same time as Jurassic Park, but was very, very bloody, which I, as a kid, very really appreciated. Uh, and then there was a series, I saw a number of uh, Vincent Price movies. Uh, the Edgar Allan Poe movies. Yeah. Uh, Tower of London? Ta is, uh, is that one? Oh, um, shoot. It's the one where it's, a, it's an odd mix of like Richard III. It's, it's not officially Shakespeare, but it's like a mixture of all these Shakespearean things. It's very strange. Yeah. And Vincent, it's a really great yeah. performance by Vincent Price. But, uh, but yeah, so I saw that. And then, um, well, obviously the original Little Shop of Horrors. Mm. Um, and others, I'm sure, well, I did see the, uh, the unreleased Fantastic Four film. Uh, but, uh, and I'm sure there are others. Um, but yeah, those are the few that I can call to mind at the moment. Well, I love the ones you've mentioned because okay. I worked on two of them. All right. Uh, <clears throat> or actually three because of the unreleased uh, really? <laughs> Fantastic Four. Oh, boy. Yes. Um, Roger, in the days when he was happy with me, which was before I wrote a book about him. Uh, I was going to ask about that. Used to give me credit for thinking up the twist ending to Death Race 2000. Nice. I have a lot of stories about that movie. I'm sure. And I worked on Carnosaur. So right. That's... This is very exciting. I'm not old enough to have worked on uh, <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, so what was that... So, okay. It's easy to be cynical about Roger Corman films, especially, you know, I just made a joke about Carnosaur. Like, like what an odd coincidence that it came around, came out around the same time as Jurassic Park. Um, you know, that's a thing that he would do is capitalize on uh, other things, you know, Battle Beyond the Stars and... Uh, Star Wars. And uh, Space Raiders, was that him? Mm -hmm. I grew up on Space Raiders yeah. and I loved it. Yes. I, well, I loved anything Star Wars when I was yeah. a kid. Um, or Star Wars-like. Um, and so... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And so was... Battle Beyond the Stars is where James Cameron got his start. Right. Yeah. And so... Um, was there, I mean, there had to be a, a general awareness that like, okay, we're just trying to like hurry up and make this movie so that we can capitalize on like people like dinosaurs because this Jurassic Park thing, we got to get them seeing our movie. Um, was that the case? Yes. Okay. Uh, we were like the creative team, which is about five people. We're all called <laughs> into Roger's office and said, uh, Steven Spielberg is making Jurassic Park and we are going to make a dinosaur movie and we are going to get it into theaters first. Uh, which was not that hard to do considering that Jurassic Park took a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, bought a novel called Carnosaur, absolutely dreadful novel. Scra I'm sure. Scrapped everything but the title and then started from scratch with an yeah. interesting young writer-director named Adam Simon. Uh, and... It was fun. Cast yeah. uh, an old friend of Rogers, Diane Ladd, as the She's evil. Great in it. Yeah, she is great in it. And uh, also, she was the mother of Laura Dern, who was yeah. in Jurassic Park, which was fun. Did that factor into it, or is just because she was an old friend? Well, or maybe both. I think both, but also because she would be great. And it was, you know, somebody's bright idea. It wasn't written originally to be a, a, a woman mad scientist, but it, that was kind of a nice twist. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but definitely the idea was to get it into theaters first, which we did. And Roger also wanted his dinosaur to be bigger than Steven Spielberg's dinosaur. This mm. was a problem because... <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 
It had to be 18 feet tall, and the ceiling of our studio was 17 feet tall. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was one we were not going to succeed at. And, and you can imagine that our dinosaur is not the world's greatest dinosaur. Yeah, but it's, you know what, and the word that comes to mind, like, is charming. Yeah. It's just, you can tell it's a lo- it's lower budget, but it kind of requires everybody involved to be almost more imaginative. Uh, and when I watch Carnosaur now, which I have done, not, I mean, like in the last few years, um, it's, uh, I, I, do I like it as much as Jurassic Park? Maybe because I'm not a huge fan of Jurassic Park, but uh, Carnosaur, I feel like I could watch anytime and really appreciate that gore even <laughs> to this day. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, and I think that's, <clears throat> you mentioned James Cameron. I was recently watching like the making of uh, Aliens, which I'd seen before, and it always astonishes me that that movie had an eighteen million dollar budget. It seems huge, and I was just like, "How how did they do that? How did they make this film with that budget?" And then you hear James Cameron talk about him learning just little tricks that save a lot of money but create a great effect. And he said, "Yeah, you learn that kind of stuff when you're working under Roger Corman." And so many, I think, very creative and imaginative filmmakers have come from him. Well, let's list some of the people who've Absolutely. come from him. Um, Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. Uh, Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. Jonathan Demme. Uh, Joe Dante is him, right? And then... Joe Dante... Joe Dante was a buddy of mine in the old days. Uh, I worked for Roger in two different periods. Uh, Death Race 2000 was in the early period, in the early 70s, New World Pictures. Uh, We made a lot of nurse movies. We made a lot of... uh, I'm in one, too. Uh, We made uh, Carnosaur and Big Bad Mama. We made a um, black girl kung fu movie, uh, TNT Jackson a lot of people like that. And Joe was the trailer cutter. And he was a very quiet, very, you know, he's sort of a small guy. He was quiet. He was a little mousy and very sweet. And he was around cutting trailers when I was there. And after I left that first time, because (coughs) my two stays were were a number of years apart, uh, he suddenly got an opportunity to direct. And when he got that opportunity, he told me, Joe was, was a wonderful source for the book that I wrote on Roger, mm-hmm. which is called Roger Corman, Blood-Sucking Vampires, Flesh-Eating Cockroaches, and Driller Killers. And Joe told me that uh, he realized, now that he was going to be a director, that his approach to the world and to his interrelationships with other people needed some work, that he just, <laughs> he, he was not your classic director, yeah. and that maybe he should work on that. Hmm. And I love this. He said to me, I found I had a new personality that I didn't know I could have, and hmm. he felt he owed it to Roger and to the opportunities he got through Roger to evolve into somebody who's articulate, who can be a master of ceremonies type, who's yeah. very verbal, uh, very smart. And when I first knew him, none of those things were what you would talk about if you met Joe Dante. 
And of course, around Los Angeles, like he's always like introducing movies yeah. and like mm-hmm. leading interviews and stuff like that. And so like very comfortable in front of a crowd. Yes. Uh, and fairly, I don't know if I describe him as charismatic, but extremely comfortable. And he does hold your attention. Um, it is fascinating. I was watching a clip earlier today uh, on YouTube. It's just a little 40 second thing. I think it's from a, a, a larger documentary in which Jack Nicholson is asked about Roger Corman. And it's from, I think, maybe 10 years ago. So, you know, uh, Nicholson's a little bit older at this point. That's he's wearing sunglasses. I think he's sitting in his... In that's his probably living. Alex Stapleton's okay. documentary. And he just starts crying. Like yeah. Once he starts talking about Roger Corman, he starts crying. And it is astonishing to me, and it shouldn't be, but it's astonishing to me how many people, they don't merely acknowledge... They're like, oh, Roger Corman like played a big role in my career. They like credit him with like giving them everything that would then cause them to be successes. Yeah, Roger has a very loyal following. But it, it's interesting. You said he's you know a really nice guy, and when people say that to me, I usually say he can be. Sure. Uh, he is a complicated man uh, with a lot of very contradictory impulses, and that's what made writing a biography of Roger so rewarding for me uh, is to find out what some of the pushes and pulls in his life are because he you can be fond of him and obviously some of the people who are most appreciative of him are, are the ones who went on to much bigger and much better things mm-hmm. uh, like a Jonathan Demme yeah I was, was very put Roger in every movie uh, that's right yes yeah a lot of a lot of Oscar-winning directors there. Oh, yeah. Um, Ron Howard, I should mention as well. That's right, yes. Uh, and you wrote a book about him as well. I did. Which uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, in a moment. Um, yeah, but, it's... Uh, you know, there there are very, very good things about him, yeah. one can say. And there are not so good things about him, one can say. And Did your writing a biography, like, did it actually, like hurt the relationship? Did it sever the relationship? Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my. Well, here's what happened. First of all, I I left Roger the second time in 1994 when I suddenly lost my job, not because of anything I had done, as he mm-hmm. was the first to say, but because an earlier employee who was actually a very close friend of mine who had gone on to bigger and better things and then really was desperate... Uh, so he gave her my job. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that wasn't great. Yeah. Uh, and then told me I had been an exemplary employee. And, uh, you and know, a gold watch. Yeah, exa- gold watch. Gold <laughs> yeah. watches are expensive. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, he said, write yourself a wonderful recommendation and I'll sign it. There we so, go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so... Uh, then when I told him that I had a contract to write a book about him, he called me into his office and we had a nice chat and he said, um, Beverly, I would be happy to cooperate with you in any possible way as long as you can reassure me that this book will be largely favorable. And not quite knowing what to say, I said, well, Roger, you've taught me so much. I learned so much. This is such an exciting place to work. Yeah. All right. And then a few weeks went by, and he phoned me up, and he said, 
I've been having second thoughts. I would like you and your publisher to sign a legal document saying that I can read your book in manuscript and remove anything I consider derogatory. Hmm. And I had worked on Roger's memoir, and I knew how touchy he could be for a guy who's made some pretty sleazy movies. (laughs) Uh, He can be very touchy. So... I let some time pass, and then I wrote back to him, and I said, Roger, of all the valuable lessons I've learned from you over the years, the most important one was the value of artistic independence. And uh, I doubt he liked that. And it's the Hey, it's a nice, flowery, and yeah, true yeah. way of saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And more time passed, and I was trying to... I I did talk to some of the alumni, but I obviously I was trying to talk to some more of them. Yeah. And, you know, had a lot of connections. For instance, I knew someone who was very close to James Cameron. And Cameron, like some of the others, went to Roger and said, should I talk to this lady? Yeah, I was curious about that. Like, yeah. You know, because... So many people like him and feel like they owe him. Yeah. That, uh, you know, did did people like clam up or did they mostly stay like maybe even superficially uh, optimistic and, and positive? Well, some of the ones I talked to didn't bother to ask me what Roger thought about this book. Mm. I would have told them if, if you know, uh, if they had asked, yeah. but uh, they didn't ask. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't tell. So, uh, but James Cameron did ask Roger. And Roger called me up and said that he'd had this phone call from Cameron and that he had told him not to speak to me because he had heard, and I don't know where he had heard this, he had heard that my book was going to be a hatchet job. Hmm. It was actually the first time I'd ever heard that phrase. It was a pretty striking one. Uh, and, And again, I somehow rose to the occasion and I said, Roger... You plucked me from graduate school. I was, well, I was getting my PhD in English because Roger loved people with degrees and titles. And I worked for you for a number of years. Does that strike you like the kind of person that I am? I said, my goal is not to defame you in any way. My goal is to write a biography that's worthy of being on the shelves of the finest libraries in the land. And again, he liked that. But I knew at that point, I had done enough, said enough to people at that point that I knew that Roger is a a give an inch, take a mile kind of guy, that uh, if he had anything to say about my manuscript, it would no longer be my manuscript. Right, right. You know, I was, uh, listeners know that I'm a big fan of Orson Welles, as a lot of film students are. And uh, I was reading, recently reading the, the third volume of Simon Callow's... Oh, really? Yeah, which I love. I um, used to know Simon. Oh, how's he doing? I haven't talked to him in a long time, but I, I, as, he wanted to make a Roger Corman movie at one time. I, uh, reading these books, I, I get it. Yeah. I can see it. Um, and as I was reading through this volume, which really deals with Wells, like doing full-on independent stuff... And just kind of bouncing around and constantly tinkering with his own movies and also directing plays and acting in them but never showing up to his own rehearsals. Like, 
I, as I was reading, I'm like, I'm getting angry. I'm getting angry at Orson Welles, an artist that I absolutely love. And part of me was like, does Simon Callow even like this guy? And I thought, of course he does. Like, sometimes, just because you're being honest about somebody, it doesn't mean, and about their flaws, it doesn't mean you dislike them. It means that you like them so much that you feel, you know, obligated to show that, like, yeah, they're not perfect. But that only makes the great, the great things they've done maybe more admirable. You know, if somebody's just perfect all the time, then their achievements seem almost, you know, boring. So I don't know. It's uh, it's something that is always interesting to me about like a biography, um, and it makes me wonder what Orson Welles would have thought if he was able to read those and said like, "This isn't me at all." I don't know, but. Uh, at the same time, if somebody wrote a biography of me, I'd probably want it to be favorable. <laughs> but I, but yeah, at the same time, I probably I would not assume to uh, have a say in it. Well, I'm proud of my Corman biography, and a yeah. lot of people that I respect truly admire it and have said because it's not that there's no other book about Roger out there. Right. There there are a number of them, but virtually all of them. Well, they fall into two categories. There. Are, some writers who really worship Roger from afar mm. and they are looking to him with, with awe and admiration. And in some cases, and in, in one particular case, one of the writers of one of these biographies actually said to me, you know why I wrote that book, don't you? It's so that I could be where I am right now, which was sitting across from my desk with a script. Mm. Uh, he wanted an in, uh, he wanted an entree, and if Roger wanted changes made in his book, uh, he was going to do that. Hmm. So, you know, I guess that, that's Hollywood. And I, I guess it's legitimate in its way, but it's not great biography. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It'll, it's a good starter. Let's put it that way. But, yeah. um, well, okay. So, uh, just a reminder. So that book is also available for people to purchase. It is indeed. Yes. Um, and by the way, that's uh, it came out originally in 2000. It's been updated twice. Okay. And it was last updated in, I think, 2013 uh, with Roger's Honorary Oscar right. and the lawsuit uh, that his son slapped on him, which is, tells you an awful lot. When you worked yeah. for Roger Corman, you got to know a great deal about his home life. Yeah. And... Uh, there are some very unfortunate aspects which continue to this day. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, there's always, I guess, with somebody like him, there's always more to the story, like every there few is. years. But I think he's a fascinating individual. Yeah. I think he's complicated. Uh, that joy that you see in, in, in the fun, well, I'll, I'll go back to my favorite quote. Roger once said, not to me, but to a reporter, Someone said, why did you study engineering and then go into filmmaking? And he said, I, moved, I went into movies because not just for the art of it, but because it was an exciting way to make money. Hmm. And the reason I like that so much is that to me it gives three things, all of which at one time were very important to him. Hmm. He never would say, I mean, to his credit, will not say, I am a great artist. Right. But... He is at least a craftsman. He, can, he knows films. He knows how to make films. He's a hands-on kind of guy. He's smart. Uh, he's certainly capable of artistic things. Mm -hmm. And then there's excitement. And when he was young particularly, 
and he was out in the swamp making swamp women with, uh, and or out you know the north the Black Hills of 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 South Dakota making Beast from Haunted Cave and Ski Troop Attack and you know that was obviously a lot of fun when he had you know the usual gang of idiots you know he had uh, Jack Nicholson and and. Uh, uh, Dick Miller and and, oh, yeah. and 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 Chuck Chuck uh, yeah. Dick Miller who wound up being in like every Joe Dante film that he yes. could squeeze him into good guy Dick Often Miller killed I believe <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know he he was having a great time and then money yeah and that for Roger I think the others aspects have kind of faded away as he's gotten older. I mean, he's still involved with movie making and he's 91. Yeah. Uh, I think the excitement, except for those moments of, yes, let's out, let's out Spielberg, Jurassic Park, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, he, there were moments, even when I worked for him in the late, the early nineties, there were moments of excitement but also long stretches where he clearly didn't really particularly enjoy what he was doing anymore. Yeah. But money is the constant. This is a man who cannot stop making money. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's interesting to see, like, among the many things that, the many impacts he's made, there's also, like, in the 80s and definitely in the 90s, there's, like, the straight-to-video market which often wound up being like, okay, what's the big blockbuster? Okay, we'll put a version of it in video stores where someone wouldn't have to go to the theater. And then some of us occasionally got tricked. And it's like, this is not the film I thought it was going to be. And then just got mad. Uh, and uh, But yeah, it became uh, an entire little industry. Oh, yes. And designing the box was the essential thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yes. And then there, of course, were the fact that you, you'd make a movie and then you'd say, oh, that worked pretty well. Let's make that again. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that it's like, or at the very least, let's use that set eight times and just uh, we'll put some curtains up over here and maybe it'll be fine. One of my favorite stories was when the, um, the martial arts movies with people like Van Damme were doing very well. Yeah. Uh, and Roger actually sort of created an action star, Don the Dragon Wilson, who was, yeah. was an actual martial artist and a heck of a nice guy. Uh, and he said, Don, you know, I'm going to, you know, you're going to star in my movies and I'm going to make you star. And so uh, they made a movie called Blood Fist where he was... A uh, nice young man, you know, in the tournament, and his yeah. brother, oh, his brother <laughs> gets killed, and, and he's got to find out who killed his brother in the ring, and uh, he ends up... a brother that gets killed. Yeah, yeah, he ends up fighting in the tournament, and, yeah. you know, and, and, and there's the, the wily Chinese mentor who turns out, oh, I'm, I don't want to spoil it, but, <laughs> uh, etc. And a few years later... I said, you know, that really worked. Let's do it again. And I was called in. This was right before Christmas. And I was told, uh, look, we're going to make it again. But we're going to set it in L.A. It's not going to be the big tournament in, in Manila or Hong Kong. It's going to be the under the freeways game in, right. in L.A. And instead of the wily Chinese mentor who does important things, it's going to be the, this this black street bum yeah. uh, who does. And... You know, pretty much keep everything the same. Yeah. And, you know, you have till Friday. And 
<laughs> That's one of my screen credits. Uh, and uh, one of my writing credits. So that was called Full Contact. And then about six months later, since that worked out pretty well, they decided to set it in outer space. And that was called Dragonfire. <laughs> and then that was spring. And in the fall, they decided they were going to do the female version. So they called sure. it Angel Fist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's... Uh... So what you're saying is, like, in the world of Roger Corman, there were, like, nine movies that just got made over and over again. Yeah. That's, uh, so, okay, now real quick, before we, before we end, um, so you also wrote a book about Ron Howard. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating to me, when I think of Ron Howard and his films, I think of a, an extremely capable director, by all accounts, like, the nicest man ever, uh, and also, uh... You know, I, this is going to sound mean. His his films certainly are not exploitative at all. Um, they are usually pr fairly family friendly and pretty straightforward. And so, um, <clears throat> and again, unfortunately, in certain crappy parts of like the online film critic world, like somebody like Ron Howard is downplayed as like as a director and just kind of dismissed, um, as sort of a journeyman. Um, but I actually recently rewatched Apollo 13 in the theater. I was like, this is astonishing. Like this is a, an amazing spectacle, how he was not nominated for director that year. I think he probably should have won, honestly. Um, and so I think even for myself, I think I, I, I underestimated him for a long time and I'm only now starting to realize like, Oh no, he is a very, uh, a very effective director, but I know that he's, he, you know, he worked, uh, under Corman as well, but his films couldn't be more different. I feel than the type of movies that Roger Corman made. And so what was it about Ron Howard that made you feel like I want to write a book about this guy? Well, it was a couple of things. I had talked to him he loves to tell the story about how he got his start as a director. Of course, he got his start as an actor a long time before that. Uh, but he got his start as a director from Roger, and he loved to tell that story, so he told it to me. And I had spoken to him, and I had also talked to some people, or I knew I could get at some people who had worked on those first, that first Roger Corman movie. Uh, he starred in... Uh, eat My Dust, and made a bargain with Roger that uh, if Eat My Dust did well, that he would have an opportunity to direct. That was, Roger was the first guy in Hollywood to see that there were possibilities, and Roger was very quick to, to, to give people a break yeah. when they, first of all, when they had name value. Yeah. So Eat My Dust did very well with Ron Howard, who was then doing Happy Days, yeah. starring in it. And then Roger said, well, I want another one, of, a movie like that, a kind of teen car crash movie. And Ron and his father, his, his late father, who just passed away very, very recently, Rance yeah. Howard, wrote, and Ron directed Grand Theft Auto. Right. Uh, no relationship to the game. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so... 
I had some great stories from that time from some of the people that I knew who had worked on that film. I was also very interested in child actors. I always have been. I've always felt that was a very unnatural <coughs> life for a child. And in most people's cases, if, if they grow up and are not on drugs or in jail, they're doing really well. Yeah. And Ron Howard, of course, is so much different from, from that stereotype of the former child star. And he was a very, very big child star. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was just interested to find out how he evolved. And the challenge in writing about him, seriously, was making him human because mm-hmm. um, he's... His image is so saintly. Yeah. I mean, there are people who use the Andy Griffith show as as texts for Christian worship. <laughs> I've talked to some of those people, and they, uh, you know, they they think that the shows were perfect, and he was a perfect little boy, and you know, it, but he's he's certainly a human being with with. You know, who was was a very young man when he started being a director. Yeah. Uh, someone who was very smart, very capable, and very determined, but is a human being. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he's he's remarkably well liked. And I remember when he when he won Best Director for mm-hmm. Beautiful Mind, which is a movie that I have come to actually like quite a bit and respect from a directorial standpoint, you know, but, you know, he was nominated alongside Robert Altman and David Lynch and Ridley Scott and another one. Oh, that's going to bother me. Anyway, um, it might've been Peter Jackson now that I think about it. Um, you know, and a lot of people, uh, in film circles, are like, how could he possibly win for, for this film? It's like, people seemed excited at the note, people in, in Hollywood and in the industry, like seemed really excited at the notion of giving him best director. Like, like, hey, we, and it wasn't, it wasn't like condescending, but it's like, hey, Ron has been working for a long time. He makes great movies and he's just a great guy. Let's give him best director. Good for him. Like there really seemed to be a positive vibe. There tends to be with anything regarding him. Like he just is an upbeat guy, but also human. I have no doubt. There's a very nice story that I came upon uh, where Somebody who was doing special effects was working with Ron on one of my least favorite Ron Howard movies, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yeah, that one's not. Yeah, no, it isn't. (laughs) But uh, he was hired to do some kind of special effects on this movie. And Ron gathered everyone together, all the new people, because he worked with the same people over and over again. But this was a huge production, so there were new people. And he said, on my sets... I believe in give and take. I believe in everybody contributing. I believe in, you know, I I will not blame you if you come forward, if you see a problem in the making or if you have a better idea. You know, I want you to come forward. And this guy had been around, This the fellow I talked to had been around and said, he thought to himself, Uh, It's the usual director saying the usual crap, you know, because apparently they all say this, uh, but it's not true. He said, the thing about Ron Howard is on his hits, it is true. That is the way he works. And then what makes the story even more dramatic is this poor fellow uh, was diagnosed with cancer in the middle of the shoot. Mm -hmm. He had to leave, obviously. Um, It was a very long shoot. 
they continued paying him, which they didn't have to do. Oh, wow. And then when he was feeling better and just wanted to get out of the house and be part of the world again, he said, can I come back to the church? You know? yeah. So he said, on the one hand, I hated the idea of having not experienced the full process because I was gone for so long. On the other hand, I can't imagine having survived this while working on any other film. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, in a way, he experienced a different process, which is the process of, you know, still being treated as incredibly important, even though he's not on set. He's, yeah. Uh, you know, he's, he's elsewhere. Um, and one thing I do strongly believe, if you want to know what someone is like, particularly a director, you know, ask the crew. Yeah. You may not get a straight answer from the cast, but ask the crew. They are straightforward people, and uh, uh, if, if they love Ron Howard, you know he's a really good guy. Yeah, and I, like if the, if the same people keep working with him, that means at the very least they, yeah. there's something there, yeah. uh, and they enjoy working with that person, not merely creatively, but probably personally as well. Um, and so what is the name of your, your Ron Howard book? It's called Ron Howard from Mayberry to the Moon and Beyond. Okay. And it goes up through the Oscar win for okay. uh, A Beautiful Mind. Okay. And I haven't <coughs> as much followed those big blockbusters he's made since. And yeah. he's, they don't interest me, frankly, and I, ha I really haven't. But he's made some interesting pictures along the way, too, including Frost Nixon, things yeah. like that, that Ron has always felt that he never wanted to be put in a box, that he wants to make things that challenge him in a number of different ways, and he certainly has done that. Um, yeah, and I actually, I never, I, I'm upset, I, ne I never got a chance to see the movie Rush in the theater. And that is a good really one. Great. It was. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I knew there was some film of his in the, in the fairly recent past that really grabbed me. Yeah. And Rush, I think is a brilliantly directed film. And of course, it's about car racing. And yeah. it's, uh, it's also got some very interesting characterizations, but the, the pure cinema of it is very, very exciting. Yeah, it's, when I was watching a trailer for it and, then I, and I saw that he directed it, I thought, like, I recognize this is not going to be that similar to Apollo 13, but the idea of it being a a big spectacle, but in a very specific way, like having to effectively recreate this experience that very few people know about um, requires a, a specific type of director. And with Apollo 13, that's the one I'll always go back to. I think like that is an astonishing yeah, film it is. on every level. And uh, as you say, he was not nominated for Best Director. He, he, I think he won Best Director for the Directors Guild. Uh, I think he might have, yeah. But he was not nominated for the Oscar. And thereafter, always, because he's not without ambition, he, thereafter he made sure that he was always listed as a producer because if, he, if the film had won for Best Picture, yeah. he would have been left out of that honor because his name was not on the film as a producer. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, and then recently he's... He was, I, I just wanted to oh, add right. that uh, even, I mean, as you say, and, and I agree, I think it's a marvelous film, and it's, it's a very, very, very authentic film. Mm. NASA gave him full cooperation because they said, we don't know when we'll ever do anything like this again. We, we really want it, in a sense, documented. So, boy, they really worked hard to get that exactly right. Yeah. 
but some of the reviews, including in the L.A. Times, where um, um, I guess it was Charles Champlin said uh, he called it. He said it. You know, it has an opi-eyed view of the world. In other words, sort of again pinning the you yeah. know the kid from the Andy Griffith Show label on Ron Howard, which I thought was kind of unfair after that many years and that many good films. Well, it speaks to something that I said. I don't even remember what I was talking about, but the idea of earnestness being seen by some as a liability, as a negative yeah. thing. And I would say that Ron Howard is a pretty earnest director. I don't think he's a he's particularly cynical or, or, or anything like that. But with a film like that, I feel like that's the way to make it. You know, not a, it's people compared it to the right stuff, which I think is a bit cynical. And it's like, yeah, but this is a different story and one that is inherently inspiring. So just, it's fine to direct it that way. And to me, one of the magnificent things it does is it builds tension in a movie where you know it's going to come out all right, and yet you're scared to death that it's not. Like, when you see in the credits, like, based on the book by Jim Lovell, it's like, well, I at least know that he's going to be okay. Yeah. Um, Because, yeah, I was was in middle school when the film came out, and... uh, uh, on a field trip, we went to a planetarium in Denver, uh, and then went to see Apollo 13, oh. and uh, it was very, uh, it was very exciting. Although at the time, any space movie that didn't feature aliens is like, why on earth would I want to see this? But it was still very engrossing. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. funny that you We're said why on Earth? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> why out of Earth? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, so okay. To get back to to where we started, yes, um, obviously please. your other books are available, but the one, uh, listeners, the one to seek out right now is Seduced by Mrs. Robinson, which is all about uh, the graduate, which is in its you know its fiftieth anniversary, and so uh, check it out for you know uh, purchase it for yourself. You know what? Let's not even say or purchase it for yourself and someone else for Christmas. It, it would make a great stocking stuffer. Well, it depends on the size of your stockings. Sure, sure. But well, you'd have to buy a new stocking just, just to accommodate it. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> uh, I, I will say a couple of things. One is that uh, you can find more about me at www.beverlygray.com and that I have a twice a week, every week, movie blog called Beverly and Movie Land. And I write about anything that I want that has something to do with movies, movie making, or growing up Hollywood adjacent. Yeah. Uh, my most recent posts is going to be on um, Roger Corman's The Intruder. Hmm. Um, but I've written about new movies that are in theaters. I've written about my memories of my childhood yeah. uh, in Southern California in, in a very different era. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess you've been in the thick of it one way or another, like right here, yeah, the whole time, without That's... having a family in the business. I, but uh, yeah, but uh, I really there's only so much I can brag about my own book. But I think you will learn things about the graduate that you find amusing and fascinating and perhaps a little provocative, and I think you will see the movie in a different light or with a little more sophistication because we remember it as a funny, wacky comedy, but it's still with us. It's, it's hung on to our lives and yeah. we've hung on to it in ways 
that tell me that it's pretty important for the American psyche. Isn't it odd that when I think of The Graduate, all I think of is melancholy? I know it is funny, yeah. but I think of the uh, of those that tone, which is absolutely there. Yes. You know? And it, it takes a lot to combine those tones effectively. And Mike Nichols did win Best Director for that film. He did. That was the only Oscar it won. But when you understand that this movie was not a studio movie, it was made by Embassy Pictures, Joseph E. Levine, uh, the producer of Hercules and Hercules Unchained. So <laughs> it was made outside the studio system. Yeah. Uh, it was made with some surprising actors. The casting of Dustin Hoffman was a yeah. big surprise to a lot of the, the movie industry regulars who kept referring to that ugly boy that you made the mistake <laughs> of casting. Uh, it, the music in the film was, yeah. was groundbreaking and, and set the stage for, I think I'm mixing my metaphors, for uh, uh, changing the, the course of, of movie scoring yeah. for un, until today. Yeah. There's a lot going on there, and once you think about it, you're going to see references to The Graduate everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um. And uh, I will say that uh, our writer, Josh Long, who uh, is, a, is a big fan of, the, probably the biggest fan of The Graduate that I know, and thankfully he writes for the website, uh, and so uh, he reviewed your book and reviewed it very favorably. Oh, and so, great. Uh, listeners, you can check that out, and then head on over to, to Amazon or uh, your local bookseller, if there are any anymore, unfortunately, um, and uh, pick up a copy of Seduced by Mrs. Robinson. But uh, And then in the meantime, you can go to battleshippretension.com and check out the various uh, articles. Uh, Sarah Brinks, after a year, finished up talking about the Battleship Pretension Top 100, uh, and then uh, I reviewed Ryan Johnson's Star Wars The Last Jedi. Uh, spoilers. I thought it was pretty good. Um, and I, it's not that I wasn't expecting to, but I go in a little bit skeptical these days to any big studio franchise film, but, uh, but I liked it quite a bit. So, so check that out at battleshippretension.com. Don't forget to, to go to beverlygray.com to check out everything she's doing. Uh, and in the meantime, Beverly, thank you so much for, for coming here. This is great. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. <laughs>